0: Michelle Corton-Brown is the Chief Executive Officer at Quality Interactions. She leads strategic growth and development of the company and guides daily operations with the company. Michelle has over 25 years of experience in leading, managing, and providing strategic direction to corporate, philanthropic, and nonprofit organizations. Most recently, Michelle served as the Chief Operating Officer of the Efficacy Institute, a national education reform organization where she oversaw operations and was engaged in program expansion, client relations, staff development, marketing, and the formation of strategic partnerships. Previously, she was an executive at Bank of America and its legacy companies. Please join me in welcoming Michelle Corten Brown to Hot Mama Chronicles. Welcome Michelle. Thank you. Thank you very much Amelia. It's nice to see you. Likewise. Likewise. So it's our custom on the podcast to ask everyone to share their origin story. Pretty much tell us how you grew up, um, tell us how young Michelle was and how uh, Michelle came to be this woman that is standing in front
1: of me. What a great question. So uh, uh, my origin story goes like this. I grew up, I was born in Buffalo, New York. Oh wow. Um, yeah. Uh, upstate New York about two hours from Toronto and uh, I was uh, an only child Uh, my mother was widowed early my father died when I was seven years old Mm -hmm. and my mother had just received her bachelor's degree um, two months before my father died Wow! and my mother had been able to secure a job as a teacher which back in the 60s was a very good job to have and she had the summers off and she had winter break off and quote unquote Easter break off. And so her her schedule mirrored mine. And we were fortunate enough to have enough resources, there were just the two of us, that we had a pretty unconventional, I had a pretty unconventional childhood in that I got to travel around the world at a very early age. Wow. So went to Europe, went to the Caribbean, um, just got to travel all around the country. Um, my mother and I, we were sort of like the two mus- musketeers. Um, and what I found was not a, a lot of people got to have that kind of early travel experience and experience the world. Um, but that was an important part of my growing up experience. Um, I was also super fortunate to have a mother who was a bit of a renaissance woman. You know, she liked classical music and she played three instruments and she loved to travel um, and she liked to try new things. So in fact, she learned, she picked up scuba diving at age 60. And when none of her girlfriends would scuba dive with her, she would book a flight, make arrangements, and she would get a guide and do her own scuba diving by herself. And so this was my role model growing up. And what she taught me was that it's okay to try a little bit of everything. So in childhood, it was about trying ballet and piano and jazz and acting and cooking, a range of things. In adulthood, what that lesson taught me was that I didn't have to lead my career in a linear fashion. That if I tapped into the set of skills that I had, I could apply them broadly, but I had to have the mindset that I could go try something new.
0: That's amazing. I I think, you know, you you mentioned mindset, Um, you know, looking at your 25 years of experience and you've had such a colorful career um, that, you know, there have been so many different experiences. When you look back over it, what are the career experiences that you're most proud of? you know, your points of pride?
1: That's an interesting question. You know, I think that, um, I guess I would point to a couple of things. When I worked at Bank of Boston, First National Bank of Boston, uh, I ran uh, the corporate philanthropy program as president of the corporate foundation at the bank. And one of the things that I always sought to do was to find ways in which the community could actually access the amazing um, resources that exist here in Boston and other cities. I remember having um, lunch at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, which I think not that many people go visit, but it is like one of the city's gems. There's a beautiful garden, there's beautiful artwork, it's tranquil, um, but it feels a little closed to a lot of people right, just that ability to cross that door, that threshold, or pay that membership or the registration fee to get in um, can be daunting, right? And so um, I helped stand up a program that allowed access to bank customers, regardless to whether they had $5 in the bank or $50 million in the bank, they could access a set of museums once a year in the month of April. We called it Museums on Us. And I guess if there's something I'm super prideful of, is that first year, we got letters from people who were, whose children were on spring break and they were trying to figure out what to do with them. They got to take their kids to nine different museums for free, right? opened up their kids' minds to, you know, art and to culture and all that. There were seniors who wrote to me who said, you know, on my fixed budget, I really can't afford to go to the museum. But you created this opportunity for this to happen, right? Wow. And so the program, I guess when you ask me what I'm proud of, it's proud of that moment. But I'm also proud of the fact that through all the iterations between Bank of Boston to Bank of America, the Bank of America still runs that program. Now it looks different because it's a larger organization, more resources, more geography, but the underpinnings of that desire to create access still exist. Mm -hmm. And what I would like to say is that a lot of different people feel prideful about some level of ownership for that program that I started and rightfully so and I'm good with that and to me having an enduring legacy like that is something that I can feel a level some level of ownership or personal pride for.
0: That's amazing and I I have to say Michelle I um, every year for the past Six or seven years, I've gone to New York City uh, every week um, weekend before Labor Day, and mm-hmm. this year is different, obviously because of COVID nineteen. But I remember going to the Met uh, with my sister, and the gentleman, you know, saw that we were waiting in line. And he said, are you a Bank of America customer? And I said, yeah. And he's like, you can come and jump the line and get into the museum because of that benefit. So again, just a testimony and a testament to your um, enduring legacy, um, for sure. Um, I just made my day. (laughs) (laughs) I aim to do that, you know, across the board. Um, So in terms of your own journey, What are some of the life lessons you've learned, both from your failures and your successes?
1: You know, I actually think that you can learn more from a failure than a success. The successes are sort of easy, right? You feel good, you've done something, maybe you had an obstacle or two you worked through, but at the end of the day, you can claim victory, right? Um, The failures are more complex and require you to be more introspective. And I can remember, I've had some really interesting jobs um, and some really interesting board experiences. But I took one job, I'm not gonna name the job in this moment, but I, I took one job and I went in with an expectation of what the role would be and the reality was a lot different. And it took me a couple of years to really reconcile. It was the first time that I felt like I was in a failure scenario. Like I was not going to be able to deliver the way I wanted to deliver. And um, it helped me. Um, I finally made a decision to exit. But it helped me because what I did at the end of that experience is I really debriefed myself about that. Hmm. What worked, I did a analysis. Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Hmm. Like what happened in this scenario? What was I good at? What where were my weaknesses? Where were opportunities that existed? And what were the threats to my success? And I did that internally first because it's super easy to point fingers, right? They did something wrong if only they did dot 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 dot. Right. And then I allowed myself, only after I owned what I did well and where I failed, did I try to examine where the organization's SWOT analysis um, led me to understand where that chasm, where was that that gap between where I was and where it was. And then I made feedback from that experience. Okay, so now what, if I go into the next encounter, what did I learn from this around questions to ask, areas to explore, what I know I'm good at, those things that I know that I'm weak at, and really use that as a prism for the next opportunity. Not to trap myself in history or bring myself down, but to really feel like if I had this experience, how am I learning from it? And how do I ensure that it's not a repeat experience?
0: That's, that's really good. And I, and I love the idea of failure being seen from that perspective. Um, you know, you talked a bit about your mom and about Mm -hmm. role models. And so I wanted to um, talk more, I wanted you to talk more about how mentors have played a role in your career journey.
1: So I would say that my first mentors were my my mother's friends. I was born in the 60s and sort of think about uh, Donna Carroll's Julia. That was sort of my childhood arc, right? Yeah. Um, so, my mother's girlfriends and sorority sisters were like my aunt. I called them all still to this day. Those who are living are still Aunt Lillian, Aunt Lisa. They are still aunts to me. Love it. Um, they will never just be Lisa. That will just never happen. <laughs> um, but they were my first mentors. They were the first women I looked at to think about how to emulate. Um, what womanhood meant, what it meant to be a mother, a good mother, what it meant to be a good wife, what it meant to be a good corporate, or not corporate, but you know, civic citizen. What did it mean to, to be resilient when things don't go right in your life, right? So even if they weren't having the direct conversation with me because I was a child and maybe we didn't talk about all those things, I was a careful observer, and they really provided me with nuggets of um, of knowledge about how to navigate, maybe by model as opposed to by word, right? right? And then I've had some amazing people um, who have been put in my path. I think about my my the guy I worked for when I uh, ran the corporate foundation in Boston. Um, Ira Jackson, who is still a good friend and still a good mentor, um, who instead of just telling me what to do, also helped guide me through his own actions and the way that he navigated community and built relationships. Um, I um, think of myself as, um, this is gonna, I hope it doesn't sound cocky, but I feel like I'm the CEO of my own destiny and most ceos have a good board and so i have a personal board (laughs) for michelle court and brown inc right um and it's represented by peers who i admire there are some people now retired who were older than me when i started this um way of thinking and you know some people are pretty credentialed and you know have great degrees and all that and then one of my board members is my one of my best friend's 84 year old mother mrs bussey who doesn't have a college degree but i promise you she has more common sense in her pinky finger well than some people have in their whole body and there are times when I can call her up and say, Here's a situation. And she has some of the best common sense that you could ever ask for. And I'm infinitely grateful for her as much as I am some of the folks who work in large corporate and who, you know, can navigate and, and all of that in that space. Wow. So I love
0: that. that that's amazing. Um, so you are at Quality Interactions, yes. Um, and so I just wanted you to talk about, you know, what inspired you to um, start start this, um, and you know, uh, talk us through what it is,
1: and um, just give us an overview of the company. Sure. So why don't I start with the need case. So um, when I joined, and I joined a company, so let me back up and say that the Quality Interactions was founded by three physicians who are nationally recognized as experts on health disparities. I would have said uh, pre-COVID that most people probably would need a definition of health disparities, and I'll provide a brief one here. But I think we've all seen through COVID that certain populations in our country have gotten sicker um, and have had more incidents of COVID than other populations. People's access to care doesn't look the same everywhere in America, right? And the death rate has, I think, really shown that there are differences in the way in which people receive care, um, have access to care, and, um, and recover. Right? So the three business partners, my my three doctor partners um, are subject matter experts in this space. They've done research, they've done 200 peer review documents and we use their research and knowledge to create a body of content, mostly in the form of e-learning, but also blended learning solutions where there's live training and e-learning. And we train frontline healthcare professionals, hospitals and health plans to care for diverse diverse patient populations. And so that's sort of the work of the organization. We work with large companies um, like Mayo Clinic, like New York Presbyterian, Aetna, a bunch of Blue Cross, Blue Shield. Uh, health plans around the country, Tufts Health Plan is a a customer, Um, and we also work with medical schools um, who are also looking to train up their um, residents, their medical students, before they go into the field. Great. Um, I joined the company when it was really more like a consulting practice, sort of small, and worked to build up staff, built up a go-to-market strategy, found investors, um re-engineered our content expanded on our content um, developed a business development plan um, and really took the company from sort of a smallish company to a you know a significant force in this space so i didn't do that alone um, really did that on the principles that if you build a a, a good team particularly um in areas where i'm not expert to hire the right people and then give them the bandwidth to do their thing. Right. Um, They can build cross-functional capacity, but um, I can't be everywhere at all times and that's not appropriate. Um, So that is, uh, that's sort of how we built the team. That's exciting. Uh, Yeah. Um, there are often challenges in running a company, uh, particularly a small business. I don't know that I had an appreciation for how hard it is to toggle between strategy and client meeting client needs and the more pedestrian, did we pay all our bills on time? <laughs> <laughs> you know i need to talk to our investor about x y and z so it is it's an all-consuming experience i'm not sure everyone is cut out for that experience, and that's okay. Um, but it was a lot different than sitting in my very big office at Bank of America with a with an assistant, with two assistants, and you know, staff, and tons of resources to do whatever I wanted to do. Um, I had to learn how to operate in a lean fashion and to really make every dollar work. That's great. Well,
0: kudos to you on on growing that business and, um, you know, as you've said, and as I've said, we're living in the midst of a pandemic. Um, COVID-19 is really, it started to take, uh, in terms of my own personal life, um, I've been working virtually from home since March. Um, I have uh, friends who have lost loved ones to this disease. Um, and we don't know, um, literally, we're, we're all walking and working and living in the unknown. And so I, I think for me, um, you know, in terms of assessing, you know, this moment in time and, mm-hmm. and this space and time that we're in, um, you know, I want to hear from you, you know, as a leader, Mm-hmm. With your years of experience, it, going through this moment, what are some of the ways you've changed, you know, your style in terms of leadership, and just um, business practices or practices in general during during um, the pandemic?
1: So COVID um, is a trip. Um, I remember vividly where I was on. Probably the second most traumatic experience I had before COVID. And that was September 11th. And I was on a plane at Dulles Airport at eight o'clock and ended up getting escorted out of the airport by military with AK 47s because one of the flights, two of the flights had left from Dulles to DC. And I remember that feeling of twin feeling of hopelessness and help, like, you know. Like the world had just come, come, come apart in that moment, and then COVID hits, right? And that's a whole different level of uncertainty, uh, insecurity, um, fearfulness, right? On a on a cellular level in your body, but then as an entrepreneur, as a business leader then you've got to take care of other people, right? And um, a couple of lessons I've learned, I would say that COVID is a study in resiliency because whatever playbook I had for the second quarter of 2020 went by the boards. It didn't matter if we had a great first quarter. It didn't matter if we had these marketing plans. I couldn't go market to hospitals and health plans because they were a little busy saving lives. Right. right. So we had to be resilient in that moment. We had to figure out how our, how to use our capital in, in ways that we hadn't intended to. We had to be planful about, in, in terms of contingency planning, what do we do if this lifts in May? What do we do if this lifts in June? What do we do if this doesn't lift? Right, right. Um, So, you know, it was a combination for me of um, pulling the team together and really rallying as a team making sure that there was room and space in almost every conversation for how people were doing, like really doing, personally doing, um, being vulnerable myself and being clear with my team that while I was a leader, I didn't have all the answers and that I was scared, <laughs> you know? And then it was getting people to focus on, getting my team to focus on what was within our realm of control. Mm-hmm. And focusing laser-like on what we could do, and then the other element that I thought was really interesting was when we were in that space because we were meeting vir- because we were living virtually. We began to use our tools differently, our communications tools differently, our Zoom differently, our conference calls differently. We met more frequently than we would if we were in the same physical space, right? And what I saw was a um, common rallying commitment to, go, to get through this crisis. That's what emerged, that we were all in it together. Forget hierarchy, right? We right. make this work. And whether it was applying for PPP funding, whether it was talking to investors, um, we really rallied as a team in ways that we hadn't before. As a result of that, we're probably stronger today as an organization than we were a year ago to this day. Wow, that's amazing.
0: And, you know, you talk, you're talking about what you're lifting is really leading with intention. Yes. And I think, you know, in addition to the pandemic, the other um, moment that we're having in, in this time is really a moment of racial equity and injustice. And I wonder, you know, with regards to your leadership and just your your view, especially with regards to the healthcare disparities, mm-hmm. you know, the conversations that are happening now around racial justice and inequity, um, you know, in all forms of business, like it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what has been, um, you know, your approach in terms of having those conversations um, and have you seen a change from, your industry perspective in terms of, you know, people being more aware and then also wanting to be more intentional in and in, in having the conversation, but putting action behind, you know, demystifying what ju- racial justice
1: is. So from a business perspective, I will tell you the business is good because there is a, an understanding that there is a gap in knowledge and a gap in experience that right. needs to be filled. And so we're seeing more hospitals, health plans, public health departments seeking out our kind of content. Um, and that is awesome. Um, on a city municipal level, like I'm really proud to be a Boston resident and to have our mayor, Marty Walsh say that racism is a public health crisis. Mm. And to put intention around how he was going to resolve that, both by creating a COVID, a, a um, health disparities COVID task force that I happen to serve on, and by making the commitment that he's going to provide training and support and really um, equip his um, staff with greater resources around this. And I think the first sign of that was the hiring of Carolyn Crockett as the first diversity and inclusion um, chief. So, you know, I think there's cities around the country that are wanting to do things differently. Nice. I think companies are beginning to look around and employees are pressuring them, not just African-American, but all employees, mm-hmm. to say, we're in our practices Um, and operations are we falling short of our aspiration so I don't know I look on LinkedIn fairly regularly I'm really proud to see companies not only focusing on hiring more women but hiring but bringing on um, leaders of color particularly African Americans uh, on senior at the senior executive level and on boards because Mm -hmm. where our voice is is where we can affect change. Absolutely. And so I'm glad to see that happening. But I will say that there's still too many George Floyd's, and um, I can't discern whether they whether the pace of this kind of experience is uh, quickening or whether you know it's my iPhone or somebody else's that is exposing it but we've got a toxin in our society I'm not going to put this on the police per se but there is a toxin in our society called racism that if we don't take advantage of this reckoning opportunity it may just destroy us agreed so
0: eloquently put Um, you know thank you so much for lifting that up and for for being a part of the work that needs to be done in our city um, on this issue Um, you know i want to pivot because i like i said you know you're a leader and you're you know among leaders on all fronts and in all industries and you've Uh, navigated during different sectors of of business and so you know I always say or hear leaders say that um, you know when they get to a certain point in their career they're focused on making the next generation of leaders like they've done everything they're gonna do they really want to grow that next generation so what would be your advice to these leaders about building the next generation
1: so I think we have to Um, be super intentional in our support of younger people. Um, And I think it starts really before people even go off to college or career. You know, I think that we've got to be the change we want to see as a community. Um, You know, I am doing a lot more work with young people I'm telling my story more because I think it's hard for young people, particularly if they don't, uh, if they're not exposed to a lot of professions or professionals to imagine what that life is like and to even understand how to access. Like, I can aspire to be a doctor, but if I don't really know any doctors, then I don't know the pathway. I might not know I need to be taking certain science topics or subjects in eighth, ninth, 10th, and 11th grade so that I can get into college and have a leg up to pursue, you know. Those kinds of conversations, those art conversations have to be had. Um, The other thing I would say is I try to make as much time as possible to talk to people. It's been amazing in this time of COVID when we're all locked into our homes. I, I feel like I'm a little mad if I, I can't find another spot to have a meeting in my house that I haven't used 12 times. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, just for variation, you know? Right, um, right, But, you know, people are living in social media. They're really reading LinkedIn threads. And I've gotten more like messages like I just read something that you posted that was super inspiring do you have 10 minutes for me I you know I think that you might be able to help me through something and Mm -hmm. literally I've been making time to do that because I feel like you know I don't have all the answers but I have a few and if I don't have the answers I may know somebody who does so I think this you know maybe not being connected to people so intimately is creating more of a space for us to be more open and generous virtually.
0: That's great. So I um, completely understand that. I know I started hot mama chronicles as an homage to the women who are living um, in my family uh, on purpose flaws and all
1: mm-hmm. and
0: that's exactly what a hot mama is a hot mama is a woman who's living in purpose on purpose and so i always ask this question to all of my guests and i want to preface this by saying there is no right or wrong answer um, the answer is yours uh, so i wanted to know um, what your thoughts are do you think hot mamas are made or born
1: I think both. I know some people who knew with intention that their life was meant to be spectacular at an early age. And they have lived that out to their full potential. And then I know others who have evolved into their hotness, for lack of a better term, either by validation of experience, or having overcome something or just owning their badness. I love it. You know, and sometimes it takes a while to own your badness. Um, but I try to my, to the greatest level I can, I, I'm from Buffalo where people are like Buffalo nice. Like It's like the Midwest. We like, <laughs> say hello to people, you know, and, and I've been away long enough when I go back to Buffalo, I'm walking up the street. people are like, hi, how are you? I'm like, "What well, I have to remember that I'm in Buffalo and that's how we do it. Right. right. Um, but I think that um, we have to lift each other up so that all the hot mamas can emerge come on right <laughs> love it
0: i love that that is so true so powerful so necessary and so on brand
1: so i say that that whole buffalo nice thing was about i actually give license to myself to acknowledge badness or hotness when i see it unsolicited because i think that i'm seeding the next hot mama when she hears that message You know,
0: come on now, come on with it. That is so true. And that just touched my soul. You don't even know that is that's everything. Um, So I want to get from you, um, you know, during this time, you talked a little bit about it in terms of self-care, but what are some of the ways that you're taking care of yourself during this time as a leader? And what are
1: some best practices
0: that you found that you can share with our audience?
1: So I'm failing currently. But here's what I was doing at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, And it's something that's free and we can all do it. I put my sneakers on and I started walking. And I gave myself permission to walk at least an hour a day. And I explored streets and neighborhoods that if you're driving by, you really just don't pay attention to. I gave myself permission in early spring to take a look at the flowers and take pictures of the flowers I really liked, thinking about you know um, a new home that we're going to buy and how I want to have a garden and what I want to have in that garden. Mm-hmm. So if I saw a landscaping you know design that I liked, I took a picture of it. Um, I also have given myself um, permission to read like not work 24 7 because in this pandemic moment where you can either watch the news and be super stressed out right or you can live in your laptop and work incessantly right Mm -hmm. we have to put some boundaries around that in order to sustain ourselves and so i'm trying to get better about closing my laptop by seven thirty. that's early for me right reading a book i belong to a book club and i'm religious about reading the book and really being prepared I have a meeting next Sunday and I'm gonna have that book read right Um, but walking reading making time for good friends Um, you were talking about loss we were talking about loss earlier with COVID um, and and reckoning with the loss of loved ones my best friend's mother died of COVID about two months ago And it's amazing how powerful Zoom is. We scheduled a little Zoom wake because we couldn't have, um, we couldn't fly to Florida to visit with her and be with her physically. And, you know, we made it special. You know, her sister sang and somebody brought a poem and we had pictures. Um, You know, just making time to be human and to touch people virtually, super important because otherwise we're isolated and afraid. It's yeah. just about the next shoe dropping.
0: Yeah, that is, that's really great advice. Um, I'm so sorry to hear about your friend's mom. You. Um, she's, she's in a better place, I'm sure. Um, and so uh, my last question um,
1: is, what do you hope your legacy will be? So um, I'm gonna have a mommy brag moment. Okay. I have two amazing, competent, generous, um, productive young men, and in spite of the career successes I've had, I shouldn't say, you know, aligned with the career successes I've had, the thing I'm most proud of is being able to bring them to adulthood as whole people. Um, That's what I'm most proud of. You know, I, it's great to have had some great roles and responsibility. I've traveled around the world. I've been on every continent. I uh-huh. have had just amazing experiences, right? But um, the thing I'm most proud of is that even with all that going on, I have two people that I'm proud to know <laughs> and proud to have been part of their growing up experience.
0: That's awesome. And I'm sure we'll have to send them the link to this podcast so they can hear that. <laughs> that, that mommy brag moment. Um, so that's a great way to end. Um, Michelle, thank you so much for your leadership and for sharing your words of wisdom to my audience. Um, you can check out Quality Interactions. They're, on a, um, they're online at www.qualityinteractions.com please just subscribe to my podcast. And as always, remember the road to being a hot mama is about the journey and not the destination. One love.